Hello, and welcome back to the Uneasy Train Explorers Club podcast, the place where curiosity is welcomed and no topic is too taboo to tread. I'm your host, Jonathan Doe, and I'm sitting here over the phone with convicted murderer William Holbert, also known as Wild Bill. How you doing today, man? Man, I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Everything's going well here. Uh, we've had a lot of problems recently inside the prison, but, uh, but you know, I'm still here, and I'm really happy to be on the show. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time, especially with how crazy things have been. Uh, you want to you want to start out with that? I mean, we we kind of had to start late because stuff was going on crazy. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. I'll, I'll give you a little bit about who I am, and you know, for your listeners, who I am. I'm, my name's William Hall, but I grew up in the mountains of Western North Carolina in the United States. But through a, a, an incredible series of events, I became an international hitman in um, in Central America, Panama, Costa Rica, Honduras, El Salvador, and so on and so forth. Anyway, and I've been, I was arrested in 2010, and I've been in prison now for 13 years. i am actually changed my life completely. I'm the chaplain here inside uh, the most, which is which one, one of, or if not, the most dangerous prison in the Western Hemisphere. This week, so that's, that's, like, a, that's like a lot to process, I know. But this week we had an, an event that happened here inside the prison, which is really incredible terrible it's not uncommon for inmates to kill one another with firearms inside the prison here all, like all the local gangs who are inside prison here have firearms and that's a crazy thing to think about i know but it's true and but they killed in the in the in the in a, in a, in a gun battle that erupted between gangs between rival gangs they killed a police officer and that has been the end of all it's like the worst thing that they could have done. So like the cops have rained down on prison here. There's, the prison where I'm in has almost 15,000, 14,000, excuse me, 14,000 inmates. It's like this huge conglomerate of three different prisons all in one, one place. So these prisons are ran totally on the inside by the street gangs. So it's not like a normal prison. First of all, to understand that in prison, you have to forget everything you've ever heard or seen or thought about a prison because things are not like that here. Basically, it's a, big, a humongous concentration camp that you've got police on the outside perimeter that will mow you down into hamburger if you try to cross the line. But apart from that, what goes on inside the prison is largely controlled by the, the inmates. How? I mean, I'm asking questions that I would think that someone on the – I'm going to answer questions that I would think someone on the, out, the, the outside would ask, how is it possible that there would be firearms, like AK-47s I'm talking about, mini Uzis, 9mm Glocks, inside a prison, you know, and why don't they just escape and go away? Well, most of these guys are gang members. Like 95% of the people who are on, who are on that in prison are, are gang members. And so they don't even want to escape. I mean, this is their life. They're born knowing that they're going to jail and they're never going to get out of jail. And if they get out of jail, they spend six months on the outside till they kill somebody or rob something or something happens again and they go right back inside. So but this is their life, their life. They, they understand that and they're born knowing that. It's sad and screwed up as that is. Anyway... And, and so, so that's one thing. And then the cops, how, why are there guns and, and for, for that better part, really, really pure cocaine on the inside of a prison that's really cheap? How's that possible? Well, the cops arrest people going north, like drug mules, going north in cars and boats and, a, and airplanes, etc. And let's say, let's just take, a, for instance, they take a, a drug boat going north. The, 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 the naval cops pick up a drug boat going north. They pull it in, and it's got 500 kilos. 
all in except for maybe 40 or 50 kilos and they keep that back. And they bring in, and we're, this is not, it's not the Panamanian policy, not the government's policy to sell drugs inside prison. We're talking about a group of select, uh, select corrupt police officers then bring the drugs to the prison and say, hey, like they grab a street gang, say, hey, we're going to give you some drugs. I want you to sell them on the inside. And then when you get them all sold, we'll come back for money and we'll bring you more drugs. And so, like, they're, like, they're making arrangements to come back in two weeks. The gang asks for firearms because they, like, inside here, everything is territory. And so they want guns to protect their territory. So the, the cops give them as well confiscated guns. Like, they don't give them, like, police-issue firearms. They give them, like, you know, old AKs and old mini Uzis they find on drug boats and in busts that they don't report. So they bring in, and that's just, that's just, this is just how it works here. Somebody made a terrible mistake and killed a, like, regularly, with, with regularity, with regularity, the, um, the drug, the gangs fight each other for territory on the inside. It's not uncommon. In 2019, we had a massacre where 15 inmates were killed in a gun battle that lasted six hours. And that was, like, insane. That was the most, Panama is a tiny country, you know, it's only got like 4 million people, a little less than 4 million people, like 3.8 million people. So 15 murders in one day was the record. It still stands as the record, and it happened inside prison. So anyway, so the other day, I don't, I don't really know what happened. Pavion, Pavion is a cell block, means cell block. Pavion, Pavion cell blocks 7 and 3 began to fight one another. The cell blocks here are these big freestanding um, they're not like, you know, not, it's not like something like back home where you have a building that has like 10 cell blocks inside a building. This, this is, each cell block is a, a freestanding, they, they call it a pavillon, which loosely trans, translates pavilion. But I mean, it's its own, you know, but there's no cops inside one of these. Not, and there's no policemen. It's, you know, the police on the outside of it. So what goes on inside is governed completely by the street gang, completely. And so one on one cell block began fighting with another one, shooting one, shooting pot shots one at another. Then it erupted into something very serious, and then I don't know why, but on purpose they killed a cop. That's a strange and terrible one with a huge mistake also. So that happened. I don't know what that was. I'm, I'm losing track of time, but I think like six or seven days ago. And since that time, everything's been on lockdown here, and the police have been raining shit down on us, as you might imagine. Panama has this terrible policy of punishing everybody when there's a mistake made like the guys here i, I run the church and on the inside i'm the chaplain of the, of the i'm the recognized state recognized chaplain here in this part of the prison um i've been in prison for 13 years I, I, as i've already said i was a hitman on the outside and i'm serving a 46 year sentence for quintuple homicide about in 2020 i started a church here on the inside trying to with the, with the thought in mind of trying to get these kids out of gangs and it's been fairly successful um and so we you know obviously don't have anything to do with the drug business and all that stuff that's going on out there but we get punished equally you know everybody gets punished and so in things that people don't know about panamanian prison uh, it really is a concentration camp in that obviously like a concentration camp is not a death camp it's not a death camp there's no gas chamber or anything like that but it's like a prisoner of war camp in that you got to buy your own food. you got to figure out how to get your own food inside here and stuff. I mean, like, they don't give you nothing. And, you know, you're locked into a box, and they don't even give you a bed. you got to find a way to make your own bed or, get, or buy, buy a mattress on the outside and bring it in, have the, you know, get a permission to bring it in. So, I mean, like, this is a real hell. It's a real 
not like anything that you'd ever even think of about prison. If you think of like a, a concentration camp or something, that's what we're living in, basically, you know. And so it's been a really difficult week, as you might imagine, um, having the cops. And when the cops come to do a search, they, that, that's a that's a that's a pretty word for like a smash up of personal property. I mean, like when they come to do a search, they come in with sticks and they beat the shit out of everybody and spray everybody down with gas and they, and they destroy all of your personal property. You got fans, you got TV, you got, they break it and bust it into a million pieces. And so that's the rehabilitation that we get. So, so that's a really difficult situation. <laughs> the, the moral of the story is don't commit crimes in, in the Republic of Panama. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so you said that they were kind of like you were having a rough day today, um, and that there's like kind of ramifications that are happening because a police officer was shot. What what are the ramifications that you you've been having to deal with because of that? Well, three police officers were shot, but only one died. Um, what what I'm dealing with like today, we've been locked in on lockdown for six days, and nobody in or out. That's a real problem because there's no way to get food. So. Luckily, we're lucky that we just had a food delivery from the outside, like the, the Monday before. So everybody's pretty stocked up, but things are getting kind of low and everybody's getting kind of nervous because nobody wants to starve. And so I wrote a letter this morning and sent it with one of the cops up and said, hey, you got to let me out because we need to move some food around and do some few things. Or like, there's going to be a riot here if you don't let me out. So they did. They came and I, I get I get on good with the cops. I got a good name in prison here and, and they came and. And let me out, but I've worked all day. I'm so tired. I was seven days laying on my ass, not doing anything but reading a book. And then I went to today, you know, they, they let me out about 10 o'clock this morning. I've been running like crazy ever since, like running like a madman here and there, like bringing food there and doing this there and re- re- repairing electricity over here. And I mean, there's 157 men here who are all locked in. So normally I only tend 16 of them, but today I'm the only one loose. So I was in 157, so you can imagine. So I thought it was six o'clock. We had a had an interview here with Jonathan, and um, and I thought that it was six o'clock and it was seven. So I like even just to let you know, I, I wasn't even I had even lost track of time. So it's been a pretty tough day that way. The, the ramifications here haven't been so bad. I mean, like we haven't we didn't shoot anybody this time. Last time we did. Mm-hmm. Last time they killed a guy in a cell block outside mine, and that was the thirtieth of December. The thirty-first of December, I, we. We're all taken outside. I mean, like all of us had nothing to do with nothing at all to do with the shooting. They took us outside, stripped us, stripped us down in, in you know, to, to underwear. Everybody has to lay face down on the ground, and they come by and they spray everybody down with pepper spray over and over and over again for like an eight-hour period. And I can't even begin to tell you how difficult that is and how bad that hurts. And anybody that stands up gets his brains knocked out with a stick. You know, this is re- this is rehabilitation, Panamanian stuff. And, and the thing about it is, this is the thing I want everybody to understand. A lot of people out there are going to say, good, punish them criminals. I want you to understand something. Panama has an 86% re- re- re-offend rate. You can't punish people into, into rehabilitation. That shit doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't work. Like, and, and, and to give a contrast, one of the easiest prisons in the world is in Norway, and they have an 8% return rate it's a really easy prison but they do an intensive rehabilitation program with criminals there and their their re their re re uh, re-offend rate 
re, you know, their reoffend rate is by eight percent. I think it's eighteen. Excuse me, eighteen percent. It's the lowest in the world. So that would be like, you know, one a little less than one out of, out of every five people in prison come back here in Panama. More than four out of every five return. So this idea that we, if we're really rough on people and really, you know, and and, and punish them in, in, a, in, in a in a violent way, that somehow that's for a crime isn't true. I mean, it doesn't work. And so, so what we're doing in the church, what do we do in the church? It, I, I'm a Christian minister, but, but my, my, my duty is primarily, I, I, I primarily preach three things. Check this out. Three, three, the law of the harvest, which says the law of the harvest states that you reap what you sow later than you sow it more than you sowed. So if you go around acting like an asshole, you're going to reap that back to you at a later date multiplied and that's true that's life i mean i don't care who you are where you are what you believe what religion you are that's life another thing that we teach is the law of the mind and the law of the mind says that which you think about you become so if you you listen to violent trap music about you know being a gang member and uh mistreating women and and you watch violent movies all the time and, and all your friends you sit up and talk to all your friends about the crazy shit you did on the outside all the time hey guess what you're going to continue to be an asshole and your life is going to be pretty short probably and if you say hey you know i made a mistake i'm in prison and, and there isn't any help here but i'm going to change myself i'm going to start i'm going to start a religious practice of some sort i'm going to either be a christian or a buddhist or i don't care what i'm going to um, educate myself because there's no education program here, but I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to read books. I'm going to do things. Hey, you got a pretty good chance of making it on the outside when you get out. And if you don't do those things, you're just going to come back here again, or somebody else is going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the, the reality of the, the things that we try to teach. And it's really effective. And I'm trying to get the government, the, the local government here, the police that I deal with are like really support me. They even come to the church service. I got a church service tomorrow at 10 o'clock in the morning. They come to the services, you know, and the kids all come, and, and it, it's a big deal. So that's the kind of that's the kind of inmates we're trying to breed. People who, when they go back to society, that they ain't gonna go back robbing and killing and raping and stealing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, if it's okay with you, um, I think that there's a fair amount of people listening who may not be as familiar with uh, your case, and so I kind of want to backtrack a little bit. I know that now you're a man of God, and I know that you're doing a lot of great things in the church, but um, I kind of want to spend some time talking about uh, the circumstances that led you to where you are now. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I kind of want to start out, uh, where did the name Wild Bill come from? That's kind of a funny story. I, I, uh, that's a good story, actually. I, I was, I was, I'd been a hitman for a while, and I had a lot of money. And um, there was a guy that owed me money. It wasn't that much. No, 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 like, I think it was $34,000. It wasn't very much money. That wasn't much money to me back in those days. It's an enormous amount now, but it wasn't then. And I went to his house to collect with a couple of my thugs, and he didn't have the money, which I knew he didn't, but he had something I wanted. He had this little seaplane, a little Cessna. It wasn't even a seaplane. It was just an old Cessna, an old Cessna, Cessna with like a pair of floats on it, you know, with a pair with a pontoons on it. So I made a deal with him that, that, that we wouldn't break him into little bitty pieces if he gave me his airplane. And he was really happy with that arrangement. So he worked it over and we stuck it in the water and tried to hook the boat to it and drag it back to my house. And I lived on an island way out in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of nowhere. I had like a mansion right on the island. So 
I had my, also my best friend at the time was an airplane mechanic, had, had been an airplane mechanic in the, in, I think the Navy. I don't think it was the Air Force. I think it was in the Navy. Anyway, so he came out of the house and he put the thing back together and got it. I mean, I got it in running, perfect running condition. And he was excited about it. And he knew how to fly a little bit. And then we were like talking about how we were going to take it. But I think he was a little nervous because he hadn't flown in a long time. Anyway, so I had a party at my house. Like maybe there's like 80 people there at the party, 90 people at my at a party. And like a party at Wild Bill's house was pretty nuts back in those days. You know, naked women running around, a big mountain of cocaine on the, on the, on the table, you know, just a nut house. And so I was pretty straight. I wasn't drunk or anything. And my friend started giving me shit. He started giving me shit. He said, I can't believe that you've had that plane there knowing you, as I do. You've had that airplane there for three weeks and you ain't tried to fly it yet. And so as we begin to get drunker and drunker and the night goes on, the evening goes on, but the afternoon, it was actually about three o'clock in the afternoon when this happened, he starts giving me shit and it starts pissing me off. So I went and I picked up the, the, the keys to the plane and, and walked down to the dock and, and, and everybody's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'll be back in a minute. I'm going to show you something. I went and got in, I primed the engine and fired him up and, and off the dock we went, me alone. And my buddies come running down, no, no, what are you doing, what are you doing? I'm like, shut your fucking mouth, you know, I'm going to show you. So out, off the dock we flew, I flew alone. And I, I had been in, I had been in, uh, in an airplane a lot growing up. I had a, my best friend had a pilot's license when we were 16 years old. We used to try to take girls up, you know, to like impress them so that maybe they would you know, we'd get laid or something. And, and I had taken off and flown a Cessna just like that one. And, um, a little two seater Cessna, just like that one, like a million times, but never landed. But I, I had it pretty well figured out. I knew where I knew all the controls. I was pretty familiar with everything inside. So I, I went out, took off, no problem. Realized that there was quite a bit more drag on the pontoons than there was normally, like if you're on an asshole on an airplane, but no problem. Took off laps down, full throttle, Back on the yoke, up, and there were two. There were two mangrove islands out in front of my house. My house was on the on the water, but it was on a bay, like a really protected bay. So there's no waves. And there's two mangrove islands, maybe two miles out. And my thought was, I'll go out, fly around them, and come back and park the damn thing, and be like the hero. So I did, and that's what I did. I went out and I flew around, and I came back. But when I came back, uh, I, I pulled the throttle back, flaps down. We're going to let it settle into the water. But when the pontoons hit the water, there was a whole lot more drag than what I was expecting. And the, the plane almost nosed over. So when it almost nosed over, I overcorrected and pulled back too hard. So the, it looked like a, a fucking wily coyote landing, you know, it was like bang, 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 bang. And everybody's standing on the dock, like 80 people standing on the dock waiting to see me kill myself. And so, but I landed it and I, and I did, I actually, actually got it landed and pulled it back up the dock, killed the engine. And got out. And my friend said to me, that's our bill. That's our wild bill. And so I've been wild bill ever since. And this was about 2007, 2000, maybe it was 2008. I don't know. <laughs> and you, and you had been drinking too. So that's pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah, was pretty normal <laughs> back in those days. It was really, really difficult to find me in a time when I wasn't drinking. So, <laughs> so yeah. Um, well, kind of continuing on with, with names, if someone Google's William Holbert or Google's Wild Bill. Um, different kinds of headlines come up with different uh, descriptive <laughs> names, you know, like a serial killer, contract killer, a hitman, human trafficker, assassin. 
Um, I was wondering, what do you think about those names, and do you take any offense to them, or do you identify with those names? How do you well, feel I, about I them? I didn't take any offense to anything because, I mean, I, I, I probably earned them being an asshole, you know. Mm -hmm. But serial killer, I don't think that, I mean, like, like the FBI, we, we go to the FBI for the definition. If, if we use the FBI's definition, I'm a serial killer. But what, like, the, using, like, the public's thought process, let's say that, mm -hmm. the definition they would be with the public's thought process, you think of a guy that's, like, sick or a guy that's, like, not very stable you know that somebody that kills people for fun or something i, I tell you like i used i did a lot of i, I, I worked a lot I, I did a lot of contract killings but I, every single one of them made me nervous I, I hated it i didn't like doing i just liked the money that came along with it and the, the and it allowed me to live that insane life that i thought that i needed to live back in those days so i'm like it was just a means to an end like and this is a really ugly um uh like example that i'm going to give you here to, maybe you can understand it though like, let's say that I bring you a plate with a piece of human shit on that plate. And I say to you, I've got a sack here with $8 million in it. And if you'll eat this piece, this tiny little piece of shit, human shit, I'll give you this $8 million. Now, a lot of people will lie to themselves and say they wouldn't eat the shit, but just about everybody would eat the shit for $8 million. That's one time a difficult situation, but let's eat the shit and take the $8 million. But what that doesn't mean is that you like to eat shit. It just means that you wanted the $8 million, you know? And so that's how I would compare my thought to contract killing. It was just lucrative, and I was already a fugitive. I'd been in a lot of trouble in the States, and I was already a fugitive, but I'd never killed anybody. And um, I got into contract killing through an accident, a complete and total accident. It wasn't something I wanted. It wasn't something I ever even considered doing. And um, and when I, I, just, I, I had no excuses. You know, I, mean, I don't make any excuses for my life. I, I look back on it, and I made so many terrible mistakes. And the reason I made those terrible mistakes is because I was a total asshole. I mean, I was a very bad person, very weak. I ran away from my problems. I didn't confront them. And that's another thing we teach here. You confront your problems, you don't run away from them. And you don't try to cover them up. You don't try to blame somebody else for your problems. You, you deal with them yourself. And, uh, and I ran away from my problems and, and I used, you know, criminality. I thought it was a shortcut. Um, would I ever do any of that shit ever again? No, God, no. And the thought of it makes me, like, sick. That's interesting. I want people to know. It's important for people to know. When I was wealthy and partying, girls, drugs, whatever you want, I had it all. Houses, boats, airplanes even, as we just talked about. You know, new cars. I had it all. And I was so terribly miserable. I mean, I was a miserable, unhappy man. Uh, it's just hard to even it's hard to even describe you know yeah yeah i mean um i can imagine that being a, a exciting life but also filled with fear because you never know what's going to happen um because there's you're a bad guy and there's other bad guys out there too you know always somebody better than you too always um but i think w where i kind of want to start uh, or or dive a little bit into your childhood because I think when people hear about people who are contract killers or serial killers like that, there's always an assumption that um, something bad happened in their childhood um, or anything like that. Um, and so I was wondering, what was your childhood like? Where were you born? What was your relationship with your parents? Yeah, I, I grew up in western North Carolina, just outside the, the 
like the, like the, the, the provincial capital of all of Western North Carolina. It's a little town called Asheville. There's, I, don't, I don't even, I don't know how big it is today, but when I was growing up, it was like, had like maybe 80,000 people in the county had 250,000 and that was the big city to us, you know. I grew up in a town that had 800 people in it, had a very, very good mother and father, come uh, from a very, very good family on a farm. I uh, grew up on an apple orchard, cattle ranch. Um, played high school football, captain of the team. Um, played, you know, had decent grades, not super good. I got a little degree in agriculture, two-year degree in agriculture. My thoughts when I was growing up the whole time was that I'd be a politician. And, and that's what I wanted to do. And I, and I, I thought, I was thinking at the time I got an associate's degree, it was only two-year degree on Blue Ridge Community College, which we called Redneck Tech. That's what we called it back then. It was a Redneck Tech, you know. And um, I, I thought about going, continuing on and, and, and getting a political science degree. But I started a business, a landscape business. I mean, we're talking about well, now I'm 20 years old. Knocked up my girlfriend, got married, um, started a family. But, you know, like, even I think that, I think I was always bad, man. I mean, like, I, I wasn't a bad kid. I did everything right. But I think I was always bad in the fact that I was always looking for a shirt. Like, I used to sell them. Remember, I don't know if you know what you are, but back in the old days, in the cable days, they used to sell these little black boxes that you could put on the TV to get pay-per-view for free and HBO for free and all that stuff. Well, I used to, I figured out how to make those, and so we used to sell those. And, and I was always doing something like that, you know, something. Uh, something shady, always. And and it's so dangerous, really. I mean, it's so dangerous to, you think you begin to, you begin to think that you're smarter than everybody else, and that's when you screw up. And I was always involved in some sort of a fraud or some sort of a scam. And I always had a lot of money, too. I mean, like, not like a lot, like a lot, lot, but I mean, like, I had enough money to, to, where everybody thought I had a lot of money, you know. Uh-huh. And so, so I think that I had a really normal upbringing. You can't blame my parents. Can't blame the, the, you know, I didn't, I didn't kill dogs and you know, blow frogs and shit like that. I didn't do any of those things that like, like a serial killer. And that's the thing. I, I don't really feel like I'm that. You know. Yeah. I think that I'm a pretty normal guy. I think that, that I, I, I here's the word I think. I don't, I don't give myself any breaks. I, I I'm the one to blame about everything. And I think that I put myself in situations that pushed me deeper and deeper and deeper constantly into this dark world. And I didn't start out that way. And that wasn't the goal even. Um, and when I was so deep in it and making so much money, I thought it was cool just because I was rich. And I thought I was living the life that I thought that every man wanted. And, and at the same time, couldn't understand why I was so damn unhappy. And today, in contrast, as I say, I... Uh, I'm living a pretty meager existence, but I'm really, really happy. So what's 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 more important in life than happiness, really? Nothing, I think. And so nothing more important than a person's happiness. We think that, like, certain things are going to bring us happiness, but they don't. I'm going to take it just a moment, if you don't mind, and and and, and let, ask everybody to come and join me on Facebook. I have Facebook, uh, I have Facebook Instagram, and a YouTube channel as well. And I want you guys, if you guys want to get in touch with me for any reason at all, uh, you can contact me directly through Facebook. I, there's a Facebook uh, group called Friends of Brother Bill. Uh, you can just join it right up and, and talk directly to me. And there's also a Instagram account called Holiness Bill, at Holiness Bill. And I'll send these links to Jonathan. Maybe he can stick them on the, in the description box. Yeah. And, um, and I just started this really cool. I'm really excited about this. I'm really excited about this audio diary. 
talked about uh kind of committing like fraud and and things like that um even as a as a young man did you have any kind of history of violence did what was your relationship with your peers in school did you get in fights or anything like that i think so i mean but that's normal that was really normal for me growing up as well if you didn't something people would think something was wrong with you i mean you grow up in western north carolina uh, in a country boy environment you know I don't think that I got in an excessive amount of fistfights, but I remember being involved in several fistfights in school, but never suspended. You know, I got like that in-school suspension thing where you have to go and sit in a room and do your schoolwork during, you know, and then they'd run your guts out at football practice, you know, that afternoon. But but I don't, I don't have, I wasn't, I was a troublemaker, but like a lovable troublemaker, so to speak, like not one that, well, I don't know, I mean, this is my, these are my, and this is, these are my perceptions of myself and others. You know, I've talked to some of my old girlfriends and some of my old friends. Now that I'm, I have this tiny little bit of fame, I, they're coming back to me now. I'm like, hey, what happened to you? And, and, and I asked the question, was I overly insane? And I'm like, no, that's what makes it so weird. You know, like you were like, I remember I, I was, I was, you know, at the end of the year, they, they my senior year, they, they, all the seniors, they say, well, what's the most, who's like most likely to succeed? Or who, I was uh, school spirit. Most, most school spirited, most spirit, most spirited, or whatever. And so, so I mean, like I, I was pretty normal, actually. Um, you talked about uh, getting um getting a degree, and then you also talked about being involved in politics. And uh, you ha- are a little bit infamous for being the leader of the Southern National Patriots in uh, Western North Carolina, yeah. which got accused of being a neo-Nazi organization, and I was wondering what you could tell us about the Southern National Patriots and the accusations of you, of you being a neo-Nazi. Well, I'm certainly not a neo-Nazi. I have a son who's, like, my son is, is half black, so I'm a, I have a son that's two years old right now, he's half black, so I'm not a neo-Nazi. Um, no, the Southern National Patriots was an organization that was basically an anti-immigration platform that, that I saw a way I thought I was young and stupid. And I was like 20, I don't know, very young, actually, 23, 24 years old. And there was this little organization that opened up on the streets of Forest City, this little town I was living in. And I went to one of the meetings and thought, I can do better than the guys who are running the show. And so I asked them to let me speak, and I spoke. And then after I spoke, they let, they made me the leader <laughs> of the thing. And so we grew, the, the, but the organization was never a racist-based organization. It was a good old boy organization. Latino members, 
and it was an anti-immigration platform, basically. And uh, we had uniform. It was a real militia, you know. We trained and everything. So I got affiliated, not affiliated. That's the wrong word. I got accused of being affiliated with a neo-Nazi organization like this. There was this guy named um, Eric something. Eric something. I don't remember. Anyway, he called and invited us to come to some sort of an anti-immigration rally in West Virginia. We were excited. So I talked to like the 10, I got about 10 guys that wanted to go, and we jumped in the van and headed up there. Well, the secretary didn't do his job and verify the thing very well. We didn't realize it was a Nazi group. <laughs> so we show up to this thing, and they're like, goose-stepping and, you know, got Nazi flags and shit. I'm like, ooh. So I told the guys, we, the guys didn't even get out of the van. I said, hang on, just I'm just going to go and tell this guy this, this ain't what we're about. So I walked over there. I stopped the van, walked over there, told the dudes, like, hey, thanks, no thanks, it's not what we're about. You know, we're like, I don't know, we're Southern. We're not, you know, like, Nazis, no, we're, that's not us. And so I turned to the van, cranked up and up and left. While I was doing that, the FBI took photos of me, shaking hands with the guy and saying goodbye. And they, like, years later... After I'd been arrested, those photos came to, to, to light, and they said, oh, look, he's a Nazi. And what a bunch of shit. You know, really, I, they, they, they smear me in that way. The, the Southern, Southern National Practice was accused of being racist on the basis of of um, anti-immigration, of like being anti-Hispanic. And so what I did is I called the NAACP and asked them to come to a meeting with WLOS, the News 13 channel, and we had a powwow on TV where I brought to the meeting like uh, two Hispanic uh, members and three African-American members with me. And the guy from the NAACP conceded that we were not a racist organization. And that ended the discussion, and we continued for a good while after that. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't race-based at all. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I had read yeah. also. Um, so how did you end up so – you ended up divorcing your first wife and meeting Laura Michelle Reese, your ex-girlfriend, who you ended up moving to Panama with. And how did all of that kind of transpire? No, it's kind of – I tried my best to leave most of my family stuff out of it. But I'll tell you about Laura. The, um, she was my secretary out in the gym or a half of a gym. I didn't own it at all. I owned half of a gym. And uh, she was my secretary there, and, you know, I was getting divorced, and you know how that, show, that kind of shit goes. One thing leads to another, and then I said, I'm leaving, I'm splitting, I'm leaving the States because I'm hot. You want to go? And she said, yeah, and so we left. And that's pretty much it, really. Uh, although, I did go. It's, like it's, like, it's hard for me to talk about stuff in the States, and I'll tell you why. Because I didn't get, I'm not found guilty of any of that shit. And even though, even though it's been more than 14 years, more than the statute of limitations, and the government knows where I am, they never asked for extradition, and now that they can't, I'm still, like, afraid to tell too much about the things I did in the States. But I will say one thing. I escaped a manhunt that was like something out of a movie in the middle of a snowstorm. And I won't even, I won't even say where it was. But on my way out of the United States, my original thought was I'll go to Seattle. I don't know why. I don't know why I thought this. I'll go to Seattle and I'll restart. I understood. I knew how to do new IDs and all that sort of stuff and how to become somebody else. I've done it several times. And so I said, I'll go there and start over. And then in that, in the, in going out there, I got stopped by a cop and, and it, that turned into like a, a, a really big thing. And I, I don't want to say too much about it. I really don't, but I want to hear about it in a courtroom later. But I escaped from them in the middle of a 
just read it out of something out of a freaking movie. And that, the problem that you have with success is that when you have lots of success at being a bad guy like I did, you begin to believe your own bullshit. You begin to believe that you're invincible. And I certainly begin to believe that I was invincible, that no, nobody could take me down. Because every time they tried, they failed, and they come in with you know, the, the, the best in the world, and I beat them every time. And so I didn't think that I could, you know, I could, I could be beaten. You know, God conspired to make sure that I realized very clearly <laughs> that I can be beaten now. Well, when you did move, so you moved to Panama with Laura. Um, how no, actually, did... actually, first I was in Costa Rica first. I lived in Costa Rica for two years, a year and a half before I ended up in Panama. Okay. Um, we went on a holiday to this little town called Puerto Viejo in, in, on the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica. And it's like Jamaica, you know, the, the culture is like West Indian black culture. It's like, and they speak, even they speak English there, or like, they speak Patois, which is like Jamaican English. And um, so I, I just needed somewhere to go, and I didn't know where to go. And that was somewhere I'd been before, and so I'm like, I know I can go there because I know how to get there. And that's what I did, and that's where I went first. Um, how did you become involved with the cartel, and, and how did they, how did you be, end up like from from living there to becoming a contract killer for the cartel, what transpired to have that happen? I'll tell it pretty quick because we ain't got much time. I I became a boat captain for a human trafficking ring. It wasn't slave trade. It wasn't the slave trade. It was these um, primarily Chinese people, Asian people, but primarily from China who had paid money to be smuggled into the United States and. Because the boats ran through the Panama Canal, they like divulged people on the on the the Caribbean coast side of, of of the Republic of Panama. And so I would I was living in Costa Rica, but I met a guy who you know it's like it's like here's the thing if you're a drug if you're a druggie if you're a guy like you know that likes to use lots of drugs you drop a guy in a town that he don't know nobody in five minutes. He's got, he knows like 10 other addicts. If you're a criminal and you drop a criminal into a, into a place like, like Central America, where it's just, that's just what, that's just normal crime is, you know, like organized crime is like more like super normal. Like in 10 minutes, I had like 20 contacts, you know? Uh-huh. So I found out I knew how to captain uh boat on this ocean. I had actually had a 5,000 ton captain's like US, US, US Coast Guard licensed, licensed the 5,000 tons. And so, they immediately put me in the boat. And I was making good money doing that. On during that session, I ended up killing a man in self-defense, and a cartel associate who tried to kill me. And I like, oh shit, man, my, my phone's about to be on. So. Just for the people who are listening, we had like a little bit of a technical issue, got disconnected. Um, you were finishing up talking about how you met your uh, ex-girlfriend, Laura Reese, and how you and guys ended up moving to Costa Rica. Um, and my next question was, how did you end up becoming involved with the cartel and becoming a contract killer for them? Right, we talked some about that and got some through that. I, I'm going to just spit, spit back over what we already said. We, I explained how I was... Uh, became a, a, a boat captain or ship captain for a human trafficking ring and in that in the in in carrying out I, I did it for about maybe 
four or five months, and then and I was making really good money. I was making seven, eight thousand dollars a week. Maybe maybe not, maybe not that much. Five, six thousand dollars a week. And then we're also talking about two thousand six, two thousand five. That's quite a bit of money, and uh, and I was doing well, and I was happy with that situation. I was only having to work like three or four days a week, and uh, I already had quite a bit of cash saved up, and I just didn't want it didn't want it to run out because the life as a fugitive is very expensive, as you might imagine, because you have you, everything is so temporary. You have to, you know, everything's expensive when you're on when you're on the, when you're living on the land. It's very expensive to live. It's not cheap at all, mm-hmm. and so. Um, they, they gave me, a, I don't want to talk too much about individual murders or anything like that, but they gave me a, a security guy who was very secure himself and, uh, through, a, a an argument turned into a fist fight, which turned into like me fighting for my life. And I, I, I killed the man really on accident. I, I, I fell on the man. This man was, I'm a big guy, right? I'm like six one. And back in those days, I was pretty fat. I'm not that anymore. I'm fairly attractive now. But back in those days, I probably weighed like 270 pounds, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was, I'm about six foot one. I was always a weightlifter and stuff. And I fell, and this guy, this guy was like six foot five, maybe, and maybe 350 or 400 pounds. I mean, he's a huge man. He was fat, but he was a huge man. And I, the fight went in my favor, but then I slipped on the deck of the boat and fell, and he fell, and he, came down on top of me and I just reached back with my hand and, and, uh, well, I, to be honest with you, I, I found a boat anchor that we, we used as a hammer, but also used as a boat anchor and didn't know what it was. It just something in my hand to hit him with. And I hit him in the head with it and it killed him. So I was like, shit. So I, from that moment on, like, I, I don't want to go through, like I say, I can't really go through too many specifics, right? But but that was actually found by the courts of Panama to be a self-defense. Uh, it was not a, it's not a murder. It was even found to be investigated and found to be self-defense. And so, so, but at, this, at that time, you know, back in that day, I, I was a fugitive from the United States for some Mickey Mouse shit. And now I got a dead body on a boat that I killed. I mean, you can't call the police, right? I mean, that's not what you do. You don't call the police when you're a fugitive and you got a dead body. So, so I called the, the boys that, that I worked for. And they came out and they told me this. And I remember I talked to my boss and he comes in and he says, what the hell happened to you? I was all covered in blood, you know. Said, what the hell happened to you? Did you get shot? I'm like, no, look. And so I showed him the, I opened up a tarp that was on the boat and I showed him the and I said, we have a problem. I said, we have a problem. And he said, we don't have a problem. You have a problem. He said, I don't know nothing about this. Here's your money. Here's his money. And I came here and paid both of you, and, I, and I, the last time I saw you both were alive and happy, and he left. He turned on the heel and walked away. So so that left me to get rid of the body, and, and um, which I didn't do very well, and it was later found. And um, and, and, well, and, and what it really did was, in I thought they were going to kill me. I figured this guy, was, this guy was deeper into the thing than me, even though my position was higher. He'd been around longer. And I thought that they were just going to kill me because of it. You know, I thought that would be what they did. And that wasn't at all what they did. I ran from them because of this. I, I was living in Costa Rica and this, you know, I was working in Panama, living in Costa Rica. And so I left Panama completely and didn't go back. And I, and I, I don't want to get through this long. There's a lot of things to talk, talk about and it's too much. We don't have enough time to tell it all. But I got, I spent about a year in Costa Rica being a, like a collections and leg breaker and collections agent for for literally 
the politicians in this community and, and this in this country club i got hooked in with this is really a crazy story actually I, it's actually it's worth telling so i'll tell it real fast if i can i met a guy who needed somebody who was at a bar i met a guy at a bar right? we were drinking at a, at a in an expat bar at a gringo bar a bar where like most mostly the most foreigners in costa rica go and, and it was mostly americans and this guy was a was like a pimp but a really high-end one you know like 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 you ran girls that were like really beautiful from europe and shit and in their in in the, the higher echelons of, of Costa Rican society. So he tells me about this story about this friend of his that owes him twenty five thousand dollars. He's really pissed off about it, and he said he didn't really need twenty five thousand dollars. He's really pissed off about the fact that the guy keeps shitting him, you know. And they're like, he like robbed him. So I said, do you want me to go get it back for you? And he said, do you think you can? I said, there's no doubt I can go and get it back for you, and I'll do that if you'd like. So he said, yeah. So he gave me the particulars, and I went the next day and got the money. And I came back to him. And he was a German guy. This guy was from Germany. And I came back to him and I said, here's your money, dude. And I gave him the $25,000 and he flipped. He flipped out. He's like, I can't believe that. He's like, how did you do that? I'm like, well, that's my job, man. That's kind of the shit I do. And, and he said, and I thought he'd give, I said, I thought he'd give me like three or four grand. You know, I thought I was thinking about him giving like three or four thousand dollars. He gave me half of the money. He's like, no, that, money, that was lost money to me. And so he said, here, here, here's half of it. Just take half of it. And do you want to go to a, a dinner? at a country club and I did not, but I said I did because I thought it'd be, you know, a, a good way to meet some people. He said, I want, I've got some people I want you to introduce you to. I want to introduce you to some people. So I went to this meeting at the country club and what it was is the, the Real Cariari country club in Costa Rica where every single politician, every single big time drug runner, everybody's got money, old money, new money. You want to be, you want to be a member there. And it's members only. And so I went to this meeting, and it was like you like had to put on, you had to buy, I had to rent a, rent a rent a suit. I didn't even have a suit to wear. You know, I had to go and find one. And so I went to this like black tie dinner, and and he starts introducing me around and telling the story about what how how he, how I know how to get things done and so on and so forth. So this judge comes up to me, and he's a he's like a circuit court judge there in in, in Costa Rica. He says that his daughter's dating some guy, blah, blah, blah. He don't want the guy with her. And he's a Colombian and he don't like Colombians. And anyway, this and that. And so I said, if you could convince him to break up with my daughter, I'd be appreciative. So the next day I went and saw him and he saw it my way. And, and he called the girl and broke off the engagement. And then I went back to the, the next week, I went back to the dinner and hit the judge comes from one side of the room. This is, a, this is like a judge. It's like a really important guy, right? comes running from one side of the room to the other side of the room, grabs me and kisses me on the cheek and tells me how I've saved his family and all this. And he gives me an envelope. And again, I was thinking like, I don't know, five grand or something like that for breaking a guy's leg, you get five grand. He gives me an envelope with like $45,000. I was like, shit, this is pretty lucrative. And so I started working for those guys. I worked for those guys for about a year, like nine, nine months or something like that. And one night, and it was a perfect situation. They gave me, somebody gave me a, somebody let me live free, rent free for work that I did in a, in a, in a condominium that was right on the 17th green. Oh, such a beautiful place. Could you imagine such a beautiful situation? All the women are gorgeous and living on the, I mean, like, I'm like living the high life, you know, living, I'm rubbing elbows with like the, 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 the assembly members, which is like senators. They're like senators, you know, and even the president eats at the same place where I eat. And, and it was like, it was like really cool, you know? So, so I was like living the high life and making so much money. And spending so much money as well, and um, the, 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 a bunch of guys called me one night and said, "We got a body. We don't know what to do with it." We ended up killing this guy on accident. So I went and I told them what they should do with the body, and they didn't. 
want to. He said, no, we're going to do something else with it. And I said, no, I mean, if you've got any brains at all, you got to do this, 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 and this, and, 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 but they didn't want to do that. And I said, if you let me take care of it, I'll take care of it myself. And they're like, no. So I said, well, then if you're not going to do what I want you, what, you, what I tell you to do with it, then I'm leaving. I don't want any part of this. So I left. And sure enough, like two or three weeks later, the body was found. And I wasn't accused of killing the person, but I was accused of like helping get rid of the body or my name. It's not even that. My name came up in the investigation. I, did, I never even got so far. I never even got so far as to be, uh, as to be accused of anything. My name came up in the, in the, well, I can't stand up to an investigation, you know, because I'm like, I'm in a fugitive from the United States and I'm living on false documents in, in Costa Rica. So I had to run and I went to Panama because it was like the only other place I knew. And there, a lot of other things happened. <laughs> this is a funny story. Your listeners will like this story. So when I was in Panama, I went to a different part of Panama than where I was working before. And there was this little town called Boquete. And Boquete was um, like a, an expat community. It was like at least half foreigner, maybe more, mostly Americans, but also a lot of guys from the UK. A lot of people, I knew a lot of people in the UK there. And so what I did is I went and I printed myself up a couple of diplomas and shit and a couple of fake licenses and stuff. And I opened a psychiatric treatment center on the square of the main street of the town. And I rented, a, I remember I rented a, a an office from this guy named Gustavo, Don Gustavo. Don Gustavo was as wide as he was tall, big fat guy. You know, I was like, just to the point where he didn't need a rascal yet. I didn't need one of them scooters yet, but he was close, you know. And um, he, re- he rented me this this uh, this office there for 300 bucks a month, and I bought a black couch. And I did the whole thing like, you know, like a, like the cliche. It was a cliche. I had like a, I had a, a black leather couch and a black leather chair, and that was about all I was in the room, you know, a, t- a table with some flowers on it. And I started treating, and they had this gringo meeting. They had a gringo meeting, like an American expat community meeting every morning, on, on every Sunday morning. So I went to the meeting, introduced myself as Dr. William Reese. And that's what I, call, I called myself, Dr. William Reese. And I was open for business. And like immediately, I had like all these like middle-aged to old ladies, like middle-aged to, to elderly ladies, ladies that came to want to be treated. And now I had like maybe 25 or 27 chicks old chicks there and like i mean it was like all i would do is ask them oh what do you what happened this week and what do you think about that and, you know i actually gave them i think it, I, I think it was pretty successful i actually gave good treatments <laughs> i even wrote prescriptions out of i mean it was a prescription plan i wrote prescriptions everything so while i was doing that and and getting and I, and I passed about another eight months doing that while i was doing that uh, and I, I got to go to all the parties as a doctor. I was enjoying myself, you know. I was like really enjoying myself with being this thing. I even played cards one night with Mel Gibson. Uh, Mel Gibson came to this place called Valle Escondido, which is a really, really exclusive place. But I played cards there because I'm a doctor, right? I'm the doctor of the community, so I play, uh, like the, the, the psychiatrist of the community. So I played cards there with the with the with the high rollers every. I don't. Remember, I think it was every Thursday, every second Thursday. So we're playing cards one night, and in walks Mel Gibson, and I looked, and I mean, it's like it's like a lot older, and this was like in 2006, yeah, 2006, and he looked a lot older than than he did in person. But I mean, like you knew who it was, but like you know, but even back then he looked like like really, really worn. And he came and he sat down at the table, and everybody, all the the guys were like a bunch of damn high school girls. They're like, oh my god, oh my god, and I'm like, 
And, I, and it was annoying to me because I wanted to play cards with the guy. You know, I wanted to be able to have the story that I played cards with Mel Gibson. So we played like three hands, and they wouldn't leave him alone. They keep asking him stupid questions and shit. And the guy just wanted to be – he just wanted to be a normal guy, you know. He just wanted to sit down and play cards. He didn't want to be famous that day. And I said, well, you bunch of stupid motherfuckers. I said, would you all just shut up and let's take this rich guy's money? That's what I said. <laughs> and he smiled, and everybody laughed. And then he played for like another—I don't know—maybe played like 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 ninety minutes with us there, played, you know. And, and uh, I think he got to feel like a normal person for for ninety minutes. And so, so then he left and said thanks and left. And that was a pretty neat experience, actually. I was like the most famous person I've ever had any real direct dealings with. And so, so then after that, anyway, one night, one day, the voice from the cartel just happened to walk into a bar where I was drinking, and and they were, and I was like, oh. Crap, you know. And so, basically, they threatened to if I didn't if I didn't come back to work, they threatened to expose me there, which would have been a, a really big thing. Actually, it would have been I mean, a really big stink in Panama. So I ended up closing up the shop and going back to work with the boys. And as I delved deeper and deeper into hell, I, I began. I, I took my first hit contract. And again, I'm not going to talk about individual murders. I think it's well, I'm past it. I'm, I'm over it. I'm past it. And, and and a lot of people might say that that seems callous. But I don't want to reopen that chapter of my life simply because I have talked about it online. And like even I tell you something interesting. Every time that I go over the one, the main reason the main reason I don't want to talk about individual murders is I think that it's disrespectful for the people who are killed. That's first thing. Second thing is that after I talk about having done those terrible things, I feel so bad about myself for like three days. I'm like a three day hangover. It's strange, strange, but I like—I don't want to even be that person. You know, I am not that person anymore, and I don't even want to think about how it was to be that person. So, so miserable, and so, so I loathe who I was back then. So, so I spent about four years as a hitman and glossing over all that time period. I did a lot of crazy things. I had a lot of fun in some times, but I mean, the life was terrible, like absolutely horrible and i was good at my job and there's nothing i ever did that i wasn't good at i was good at my job i didn't enjoy it i didn't um like i, I know i know guys who do that work also who are like sadists who enjoy that job like i never did and, and i like i've never killed anybody that knew they were going to be killed before they were killed i don't know if that makes any sense to you nobody that i ever killed died knowing not even one second before that they were going to die mm -hmm. so and I didn't do that because I was like a nice guy. Not because I'm a nice guy. I did it because I didn't have the stomach. I, I don't have the stomach to say this. Ha, 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 you're about to die. Say your prayers. I, I don't have the stomach for that. I don't have the balls. Or the, I'm not sick enough. Whatever. However you want to think about it. I, I just don't have it in me to do that to somebody else. And so, like, I would always get close, move in close, and, like, make a joke. Like, What's that over there? They look over there and then shoot him in the back of the head. That was basically my always the way that I work. And then and then also sometimes, you know, like on some job you don't even then you don't get close to them at all. You're it, you know, you just like it's some you catch them walking in the in the right area at the right time and but but most of my jobs were really close. You had to get really close to the people to do the job. And so I had like a motif to do it and all that. It was, but, I, but again I, I don't want to go into individual murders, you know, for reasons I've already stated and so and so I in two thousand ten I got hung. I got really, um, like the police got onto me because of a, we had a rat in the organization who ratted on a bunch of shit and a bunch of shit. And so I left to go to Costa Rica 
to to be on the just to hide for a little while. And I had a friend of mine. I had several friends, but one that I worked directly with in the DE Jota. The DE Jota is the Panamanian version of the FBI. It's like the FBI, like the federal investigators in Panama. You have a lot of power, and and I worked with those guys a lot. I mean, like I I actually did murder contracts through one of them a couple of times. Anyway, and so he called me when I was in Costa Rica, and he said, "Hey, you're hot." They've, they've issued a warrant for your arrest, so stay away. And I said, what do I do? And he said, nothing, just hang loose. If you can stay away for four or five months, I'll fix it. I'll make it, I'll, I'll fix it. But, but it's going to take me a little time because it's really hot right now. It's really like, you know, the Americans are involved. I'm like, oh, shit, that didn't sound good at all. But I owned this little cabin in this town called Turialba in Costa Rica. And so I was there. And I thought, well, I'll just hang out here for a couple months. And so I went to, I went to a little town and bought a bunch of stuff and just, stock the place up, you know? Mm-hmm. So one morning, like maybe three weeks later, two or three weeks later, not longer than three weeks later, I turned the television on and I saw my face on the tel- on Costa Rican on Costa Rican news. Uh, El Salvaje Bill, Wild Bill, wanted uh, the most uh, most dangerous assassin, most dangerous hitman in the history of Central America, killed over a thousand people, it said. I'm like, oh my God, what the... I mean, like, my, my bowels turned to water, literally. And my knees began to knock it. The phone began to ring, and, and, and like people that I know in Costa Rica are calling me, and they recognized me. I mean, like I was on the freaking news on the front page of the paper, you know. So I ran and buried myself in the jungle, in between Nicaragua and Costa Rica, and like I mean, I literally, I, I literally threw like thirty-five thousand dollars in cash in a box. My 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 wife at the time, a couple of pistols, and maybe a change of clothes, and we were off. And I buried myself so deep in the jungle you could only get there by boat and, and up a river, like some shit out of Heart of Darkness, you know? Like really like like something out of, something Conrad wrote, like out of Heart of Darkness. I buried myself two days up a river. And I think that when it's your time, you know, when you've reached your end of of, of your abilities, the God moves to make sure that, that no matter what you do, you fail. I mean, like, you know, when you, when you reach the end of, of like, like that was enough, you know. I'd been, I'd been, I had felt enough havoc, and I think that providence or God, universe, whatever you want to say, decided that that's enough, Bill. Yeah, no, that's enough. I still got some work for you to do later, but but we're you're going to have to go through a period of extreme pain for a little while to get you straightened out, and, that, and that's when the, the pain began. I was on an island in the middle of the the San Juan River, which is the border between Costa Rica and Nicaragua. Costa Rica and, and Nicaragua, unbeknownst to me, un. un unknown to me began a, a war over the island on when I on where I was <laughs> so I happened to be on this island and the Nicaraguan military invades and they they beat the shit out of me I mean they, they shot at me with AK-47 I was in a boat uh, going to get gasoline I came back and they shoot at me with my wife in the boat at the time she's not my wife anymore but she's my wife at the time in the boat so they shoot at me and I stopped the boat, and I'm like, what the fuck? And so they, they pull up beside me, and I'm like, hey, there's some kind of mistake. And I didn't even get it out of my mouth before, like, three little brown guys jumped from one boat into the other boat, beat the shit out of me with a stock of an AK-47. So, I mean, like, it's not like you can resist, either. They got AK-47s, and there's, like, eight of them. If you resist, they just shoot you. So I just take it. And they tie my hands behind my back, and, and, and like, all these little pygmies helped me get over into the other boat. And so I'm like, and I'm screaming, don't hit the woman, don't do that. And they didn't. They didn't They didn't hurt my ex-wife. I was afraid. The way they were treating me, I was afraid they would do that, give her the same treatment. So they take me back 
to their their new encampment, and it's brand new. They they just they just macheted it out of the jungle, and they take me to their major. And I remember his name is Sanchez. They take me to Major Sanchez, and and, and I'm all beat to shit, got a broke nose, and you know, and blood all over me. And so they take me in and sit me down. And he comes to me and he says, you're a drug trafficker. I'm like, why do you think I'm a drug trafficker? He said, because you have $32,000 and two pistols. And I said, no, 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 no. You got that all wrong. I said, I have $16,000 and you have $16,000 and them pistols are mine. I'd appreciate it if you'd hand them back to me. And then there was this moment of like complete silence. And the major says, we've made a mistake. Everybody out of the office. And so they let it, they let, they take everybody out of the office. He pulls out this big long knife and cuts mine. I wasn't even, I wasn't handcuffed. I was tied. He cuts my, my hand straight from behind my back and offers me a cigarette. So I'm sitting there on this table smoking a cigarette, and he's pouring two shots of, of Florida Caña, which is really good Nicaraguan uh, rum. And I'm counting out $32,000, 16 and 16, like like dealing poker. Like, one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. It was all in $20 bills. You know? so, I mean, it's not that much money, but for him, a Nicaraguan, a Nicaraguan major made about $400 a month. You know, and yeah. he probably still does make, make $500 a month. So, I mean, like, that's, that's like... All the money he'd ever make in his whole life was there on the table. So he's happy. So they take me outside, and the damnedest, I mean, like, really, I, I'm telling you, man, when God decides that you're done, you're done. There ain't nothing you can do about it. I'm, I'm using all my faculties to get out of this problem. And they take me outside, and somebody, listen to this shit. Somebody at the gas station where I went, when I say gas station, I'm talking about hut on the side of the river where you buy gas out of a 55-gallon barrel. Somebody at the hut where you buy gas recognized me as El Salvajibil, off of the news, and had called the Costa Ricans. And the Costa Ricans, the Costa Rican, the Costa Rica doesn't have an army. They have a police force only. They have no army. The Costa Rican uh, police force had commandeered the Teletica news chopper and was running up and down the river looking for me. And I'm standing on a flat plane of grass, flat plane. The guy has is fueling up my boat so that I can leave. And this helicopter comes across the river. The, the Nicaraguans hate the Costa Ricans because they're in a war with them, basically. They raise AK-47s. And I saw the chopper, and I, I just knew. I just knew it was for me. I don't know how to tell you, but I just knew. And I said, shoot, shoot. I'm like, shoot that fucking thing down because I knew it was for me. And they didn't shoot. They waited. They were waiting on the orders from their major. And their major is like, what the fuck, you know? And... So then some police officer sticks a bullhorn out the window of the helicopter and says, you know, that guy that you got right there is the most wanted man in all the world right now. He's on every television screen, including Nicaraguan television. Don't let him get away. And I turned to say something to the major, and then an AK-47 hit me in the back of the head, or a, I don't know, something hard hit me in the back of the head. And I knew no more for about two hours. And when I woke up... <laughs> When I woke up, I was tied with my hands behind my back. My, my my wife at the time was crying, and I was like in a closet waiting on somebody to come and pick me up and drag me to Managua for, for, for literally, literally for like torture. For like They do Soviet-style torture in Nicaragua because they're communists. And so um, three days later, I was in Managua, uh, the capital city of Nicaragua. Got there by boat. They took us by boat. It took three days to get there. No food, nothing to eat. Drinking water out of the out of the river on the boat, like sticking my hands over the water to get the lapping up river water to drink. We get there, uh, they immediately took me. Uh, the Americans came to see me, and I said, "Help, help! Send me back to the United States." 
And um, some dude from, I don't know, I think he was CIA or something. There was this really, really fucking hot chick. I mean, she was so sexy. <laughs> I remember it like vividly. She was really attractive. She was from the embassy. She was so nice, dude. She was so nice to me. And then there was this real asshole, like, I think he was a CIA or, or NSA or something. You know, like one of them, one of them spooks came and, and I said, hey, man, you know, we want to go back to the States. He's like, I bet you fucking want to go back to the States. I'm like, no, but I'm like, you're like from the embassy, right? And he said, if I could, I'd have them ship you right now. And I'm just like, well, fuck you very much, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that was pretty much, that was pretty much certain that, you know, I just kept my mouth shut after that. There was no reason to cooperate because there wasn't, and there was no reason to help them help screw me. So when the Americans finally left, the lady from the, the lady from the embassy went and got us food and brought us food, me and my ex-wife. And we ate, and that was the first meal I ate in like three days. And then they put me in this dark room and left me in this dark room with no food, no water, no you had to shit in the corner. I mean, just hell on earth for like three days. And so finally they come and get me out of the room and I'm like demanding a shower and food and shit like that. And they're like, they take me to this room. And so this guy's like really nice talking to me in English. I'm like, no, man, I want to go back to the States. He's like, no, you want to go back to Panama. I'm like, no, I want to go back to the States. He's like, no, the United States, you're afraid, aren't you? You're afraid to go back to the United States. I'm like, hey, motherfucker, I want to go back to the United States now. Like yesterday, I want to go there. Because I knew that nothing that they have on me would be admissible in an American court. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like, no way some evidence collected in Panama is going to be admissible in an American court. I no way. And so, so anyway, so he brings this little kid in who has, like, a, a bat. But it's a bat that's got, like, foam wrapped around it. Literally, like, like, like I don't know, like a piece of furniture foam wrapped around this bat. And they start beating me with this bat. And I, the kid was like, I mean, like, I'm, I'm like the Jolly Green Giant, right? These are huge, tiny little people, and it didn't hurt at all. He's hit me with this thing, and like, it's supposed to hurt or scare me or something. It didn't hurt at all. And I took it away from him. I was chained, but I took it away from him. And when I took it away from him, they freaked out. Then they freaked out, and they went and got real bad, so started beating shit on me. So they're, like, really, really good at what they do. I mean, like, super good at torture. Not, like, torture. Not, I mean, I didn't, like, put my feet on the fire or like. But they know how to beat you in which you don't leave they don't leave any marks on your face or your arms or anything like that. They 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 want them to hold your hands up and they'll beat you in, the, in like the ribs and shit. And I remember when I got finally got to Panama, they took pictures of my, my chest and ribs and it was like all just black where they beat the shit out of me. And they wanted me to sign this paper saying renouncing my right to go to the United States and go to Panama. So I never did. But anyway, the Pan I don't know what they did. I don't know what they did, but the Panamanians finally came and picked me up like I was there for like a couple of weeks, not very long, a couple of weeks maybe. And the Panamanians came and picked me up, and I'll be honest with you, after being there, I was ready to go. I didn't even resist. I didn't sign anything to go. I didn't resist when they said they wanted me to go either. So, what was going on with your? Uh, what was happening to your wife that, during this whole time? Your ex-wife. Nothing. She was being held. She was being held not very well. I mean, she wasn't being treated very well, but she wasn't being beaten. She, I was worried about that, you know. And they're telling me the whole time. They're telling me how they're raping her and beating her, and I'm like, and I'm like. And I didn't know what to do because they're like, sign here so you go back to Panama. I didn't want to go back to Panama. We're trying to get the space to get out of this mess, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and so anyway, so finally they, they ship us back to Panama. Check this out. So I get on the plane. They put a, they put a hood over my head and they chain me to the floor. The plane gets in the air. The guys take the chains. And it's like complete silence. Everybody, all business, you know? Mm-hmm. The, the plane gets in the air and, and like they become, they, they become school age children. They, 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 they unchain me, they take the hood off, I'm still like handcuffed, hands and feet, but they chain, They take the chains off the floor, they take the hood off. This was all for the news media. And and this guy hands me a, a chicken sandwich that they had bought in Panama 
They're all eating chicken sandwiches from Panama that they brought on the on the when they left. They bought like a box of chicken sandwiches from Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so they give me these this Kentucky Fried Chicken sandwich and I'm eating it. And so this guy says, Hey, will you sign this paper for my wife? Or my girlfriend or something? And I'm like, What? I'm like, sign here, sign this bill, would you please? I'm like, Okay. So I gave him an autograph and they're like and I'm like, Why would you want me to sign it? And he's like, You don't even know you're famous. I'm like, No. And they're like, dude, it's like every news camera in the whole fucking world is waiting on us when we land. We're, we, they've even timed the plane to land at 6 o'clock for the 6 o'clock news. I'm like, oh, my God. So I thought to myself, I am totally fucked. I mean, like, I am totally fucked like nobody's ever been fucked in the history of the world. And I'm going to make a joke out of all this shit because that's just who I am. So we landed, sure enough. 50 news cameras, man. ABC, NBC, BBC, Teletica, Telemetro, uh, uh, Telemundo. Every every Latin American, every American, and every every uh, European major network is represented there. No shit. So there's like a famous footage of me like walking down off the plane, like going, blowing through my lips as I look at all this madness and think, oh my God. So we get up there and, he, and Ricardo Martinelli, the president, and this is on a private plane, by the way, and it was his private plane that he sent to pick us up in Nicaragua. He had a thing, little thing prepared, like, for the news media saying, remember, first of all, Martin is a great guy. I know him now. I didn't know him then. I've got, I've got to know him over the years. He's a great guy. But back then, I didn't know him at all. I didn't even know who he was. And, and he has, he had this little press conference, like, purple walk thing set up. So I do the purple walk thing. I walk in there. They found the two biggest Panamanians in the history of the world to stand next to me. So I look, I don't look like so large, I guess, or I don't know. Anyway, and so they, 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 they walk me out off the plane down up to this little thing that they have planned. And Martinelli begins to talk. And he says, he's speaking in Spanish, of course. And he says a lot of things. He says a lot of things. And then he says, I, I want to thank the Panamanian forces, the Panamanian police and forces for, for capturing this monster. And I said, hey, wait a minute, boss. And every camera in the world turned to me. The, the monster is going to speak. And I said, you know, it wasn't the Panamanians that captured me. It was your Panamanian forces are a bunch of dipshits, and they let me go. It was the Nicaraguans that called me. <laughs> and there was a silence. There was a silence that droned on and on and on. And then somebody, a woman, started to laugh. And then everybody started to laugh. And then... Then again, some other woman, not the same one that was laughing, asked me, she stuck a, uh, a thing in my, uh, a microphone in my face and says, do you have anything you'd like to say to the Panamanian public? And I said, yes. I said, I'd like to thank the Panamanian public for this, this private jet. I've never, I've never been on a private jet before, and I'm really looking forward to a little vacation in La Jolla. And La Jolla is the prison, you know, the big famous prison. Uh -huh. And so everybody started laughing again, you know, they're laughing. And so they asked me three or three questions, and I made a joke out of the whole thing. And Martinelli was turning red, and he's like fucking pissed off, you know. So he says, "Get out of here! Get him out of here!" And so they like jerk my chains and, and jerk me off. You know that wasn't what I was supposed to do. I wasn't supposed to steal a show, and it was supposed to be a triumph for the, for the wonderful Panamanian authorities. Instead, it looked like and it made him look like a bunch of idiots. And and I think that that moment is when the fame really hit, you know. And so I spent I spent. Um, three weeks in the investigation center and then they sent me to prison afterwards and i've been here for 13 years or almost and in july it'll be 13 years 
So, so that's my story. I, I, I wrote it. I wrote about that. I mean, like everything I just talked about, all the like running from the Panamanian authorities, getting out of Panama, hiding in Costa Rica, being captured and tortured by the Nicaraguan authorities, and my up to my first year in prison, com- completing my first year in prison. I wrote a book about that called Long Live the King Wild Bill. It's, I'll, I'll send the link to you so you can post it for the listeners. It's um, it's available on Amazon. I got great reviews, too, by the way. Uh, the only people that gave me bad reviews are people who said, oh, he's a killer. He shouldn't have he shouldn't have the right to speak and or something like that. Just crap like that, like Karens, you know, that are angry. And um, But one of the things that's really nice is I'm able to speak. I, you know, I'm in Panama, I'm in the United States, and so... So there's no son of Sam bullshit or anything. But not only that, I would never, you know, I would never write a book about killing people. I never, I wouldn't, I'll never do that. That'll never happen. You'll never hear the Wild Bill story or that, that part of the, the Wild Bill story being told because I think that that's really disrespectful to the people who were killed. And I didn't want to kill anybody. It wasn't like, oh, I, I went day to day enjoying killing people. It was just a way to make money. And I'm not justifying anything that I did because it was all wrong. Had I not killed those people, they'd still be dead. Somebody else would have somebody else would have done the work. So, so that doesn't make it any better. I'm not trying to get out of anything. I don't want anybody listening to say, "Oh, he's not repentant." And there's another thing. I'll say this, and we're about done. A lot of people say, "Well, he has no remorse," and they're right. I, I don't feel a lot of remorse, and I want to make that real clear. Now, listen carefully about what I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. I'm repentant. Repentant means you realize you fucked up and you did something to change to make sure that that never happens again when you repent remorse is when you sit around feeling bad about what you did forever and that shit don't help anybody or anything repentment is when you make a mistake and you realize you've made a mistake and you do everything within your power to correct that mistake remorse is sitting around being depressed. I don't pass. I don't. I don't pass a minute sitting around being depressed about my situation. I fucked up. I realize I did, but I got to get on with my life. And also, I've got to do the very best I can to make up for those mistakes. I, and that's what I'm doing. I'm. I'm killing myself every day. Today, I work. I work for ten hours today. You know, taking care of these prisoners, trying to show them that that's not that, that there is life after prison, and that and that a person can change if they put in put in the effort. And I'm a changed man. I'm not the same man I was. The police know it. And I hope to God that one day the world will know it. That's my, that's what I'm trying to do. That's why I'm doing it. That's even really the reason I'm doing these interviews, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much my story, bro. Um, what, uh, I know that you haven't spent any time in an American prison or anything like that, but what differences can you share, like going through your trial and, and being in, um, uh, in the prison that you're at now? Um, that's different. I know that um, it's easy to get a lot more contraband stuff. We talked earlier about people having guns, and what's your experience like overall in general? Like, what's your day to day kind of look like? Let's do, let's do this in two parts. Let's talk first about the justice system, and then we'll talk about the prison system. First, the justice system is completely fucked. Mm-hmm. And when I say completely fucked, I'm in. I went into this thing knowing that I'm screwed. So the, the first day I confessed, I said, I want to confess. And they wanted me to rat on everybody, and I wouldn't do it. Because, I mean, like, I don't know where I come from. It's the worst thing. And ratting on anybody ain't going to help me get out of prison. They ain't going to help me. They ain't going to give me a lower sentence or anything because of that. So so I didn't. And I thought that I was, I'm not the I thought I was a bad guy. I thought I was a good con man until I met the Panamanian authorities. That's a bunch of lying, conniving, horrible bunch of bastards. I'll tell you that. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine. You couldn't trust one of them. I mean, like, I thought. 
that I was a thief. I thought that I was a hitman. I thought, I, they, these are the, the real criminals are these motherfuckers. I'm telling you, like, they stole even the toilets out of my house, man. I mean, like, they stole everything. Like, my cars wouldn't, didn't appear. Like, like, they don't have any legal precedence at all to confiscate nothing from me. I'm here for homicide. I ain't here for, for money laundering. And I, and I ain't bitching. Don't get me wrong. I ain't bitching about losing all my stuff. That's a good thing that happened to me. It was a good, it was a good lesson. But what I'm saying is they didn't give a shit about who was killed. The only thing they cared about was where's all your shit so we can steal it. And that was it. And when I say steal, I don't mean confiscate. I mean theft. I mean shit disappearing. doesn't appear in the, in the, in the, in the case file. You know, like I had a brand new 2000, and this is back in the day, but I had a brand new 2008, which was one year old or two years old when I, when I, when I was arrested. Dodge truck, like top of the line, Dodge uh, 2500 diesel truck, cost like $60,000 new back in 2008. That disappeared. I had a yacht that disappeared. When I say disappeared, I mean, they can't find it. They don't know where it is, never heard of it. What, what yacht, you know? And, they, and, and it was the parties that, that stole it. And so these, they weren't interested in who got killed. That wasn't even never a part of it. They were interested, where's the money? How can we, you know, how can we steal the money? And, and that was my my education with Panama. Everything here is so freaking corrupt. It's, it's, and so, so you can imagine the prison the same way. Prison in the United States is much better than prison here, even though you got communication. You got communication here, but that's the only fucking thing you got. They don't they don't give you a mattress to sleep on, man. They don't give you food. They don't give you toilet paper, toothpaste, toothbrush, medicine. No medical care. You get sick, you fucking die. Um. These are the difference between Panama and prison also. I mean, like, they have these wonderful laws written about how prisoners are supposed to be treated. They don't follow any of them. No rehabilitation. You know, I, you, can't go to, you, you can't go to college here. You can't uh, working. The only, one thing that's really cool, there's a couple of good things about Panama in the prison. First is the communication issue because you can, you know, bring in your own cell phones and stuff like that. Um, but, but the fact that there are guns in prison here make this such a dangerous environment you can't imagine how. I mean, like, not only that, like a lot of people commit suicide here. Like this is three percent, three percent per year, okay, per year, three percent per year suicide rate in the sector where I am. I mean, you know, three out of a hundred or four. No, I said three is two percent. Excuse me, I don't want to over this. Two, two out of every one hundred men that are in here for one year commit suicide. So you can imagine how wonderful a place it is. You know, generating that sort of that sort of suicide rate. It's insane. I know prison in the world has that. I mean, like if the American prison was zero point zero point zero zero one percent, it would be a lot, you know. And so uh, people get killed here all the time, you know, murdered in prison here all the time. It's a normal thing. There's no fist fights in a prison here. That's another thing that's interesting. And all of this stuff that I'm talking about right here, I have a I have a uh, a, a YouTube channel called Life Inside Hell. Life Inside Hell. I'll send that link as well. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about all of the different things, you know, things that happen. You know, it's an audio diary. We have, a, I have an audio, I have an audio diary that drops every three or four days. Um, and right now, I've got episodes, you know, ready to drop up until like the end of March about things that happen here. You know, and one thing that's good about a Panamanian prison is there's conjugal visits. You can get laid in a Panamanian prison. And man, my brother, I have done a lot of that. Um, I, I got divorced in 2013. And, you know, divorce I didn't want. I did a divorce I didn't want. But I got divorced in 2013 and spent a, like a year kind of sad or nine months and kind of sad until I understood how the conjugal visit system worked. And what I did was this. I, I 
I was famous. I got really thin, or not thin, but like athletically in shape. I looked great. I felt pretty good at myself. Poor, I broke, straight, you know, hard. I couldn't have two dimes thrown together, but I was really famous. And I found out that like all the girls in Panama wanted to fuck me. And oh wow, didn't even realize that. And so I had a conjugal visit with my ex-wife. And so, you know, Panama in prison because everything's so corrupt, you can pay to have your conjugal visit whenever you want. And in the old jail, you can't do that where I am now, but in the old jail, I was in so in charge of the prisoner, I had a key to my own cell. I could pay 150 bucks to the cops, and they would bring a girl in from outside and, and put her in my cell until 4 o'clock in the morning. 8 o'clock at night to 4 o'clock in the morning, 150 bucks. So I, I opened up a Facebook um, page. And this is 2004. I still have it, actually. It's in Spanish. And I called the La Critica... <laughs> La Critica is the biggest newspaper in Panama, and I said, hey, look, I got a Facebook page. You should make a stink out of that. You should make a problem about that. You, could, you should bitch about the fact that I have a Facebook page, and they did. And everybody in Panama tried to be sent me a friend request. So what I did is I went through all those friends, and then the cops came and searched me and blah, 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 blah. But it blew over. I knew it would blow over. So what I did, I went in two days to having a Facebook page that had 5,000, the maximum amount was 5,000 followers. 5,000 friends. So I had 5,000 friends, and I just went through the list, selecting only the most attractive women on the list. And then I put, just took out a message. A message. I said, hey, it's me. It's really me. It's really me. I'm Wild Bill. I'm in my cell right now, and I'd like to fuck some girl this weekend. If you'd like to fuck Wild Bill, shout out. And like 800 women said they wanted to fuck Wild Bill. So I began like this. Okay, this is another thing. This sounds like, sounds like, oh, it's la la la. It wasn't la 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 to me at all. I was nervous around girls, man, my, my whole life. I mean, I always had a wife or a girlfriend or something, but, but I was no Casanova at all, ever. Mm-hmm. And I was armed with this new tool, this fame that I didn't know how to use. And so I immediately found out how to use it to get laid. And my God, I spent, from 2014 to 2016, I, I had like 300 different women come to the prison to, to fuck me. And so... I went from being nerdy and like afraid of girls to like having a really good education about women in that time period, at least sexually, not maybe not emotionally, but sexually. And then, in, in of course, 2016, I started, you know, in a serious relationship with a girl, and and then that fell apart. And I got married in 2018, and then that fell apart again in 2021. And now, uh, you know, I'm 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 in a place where it's really difficult because there's no con- where I am. There's no conjugal visits, and it's a really difficult part of the prison. How did I get here? I, the Daily Mirror did a, in, in Great Britain, did a story about the great, even even over there, the great privileges of my life. And the great privileges I was enjoying prison stunk so bad that even, even in Britain they smelled them and, and did a story about how, like, I was a rock star in prison. And, and they sent me to this hellhole where I am now, which I'm scratching and clawing for three and a half years trying to get out of. So, are you just there, us pretty much up. where you're at currently? Are you there and where you're staying currently? Are you there indefinitely or are you just there for a temporary hold or something? Well, I've been given a Panamanian death sentence. And what that is, is it's an unofficial slang term for when the government gets pissed off at you. And so they take away your human rights and they put pressure on you so that one of three things happen you kill yourself. Someone else, another prisoner, kills you, or you die of natural causes. 
and it's it's about 33 percent effective about uh, about a third of the people who get a panamanian distance pass away because of it one way in one of those three ways i just mentioned mm-hmm. i'm almost on the other side i start i'm i think i feel like i'm on the other side i got the cops are with me the cops are with me the cops see that i'm doing something that's really worthwhile i'm trying to get the prison system to see that i have this system that's working at least not it's working to some degree and I want to implement it on a national level. And so that's the next move I'm trying to make right now is to get the prison czar trying to get to him, to be able to speak to him. Like, hey, man, look, I've really changed my life. I want you to come and talk to my to my police commissioner. I want you to come and talk to my police commissioner because he'll tell you the truth about me and what I'm doing inside the prison and how you guys could, should be using me like a monkey, like a show monkey. You guys should be saying, hey, look, this guy changed because we're so good instead of trying to break it off of my ass or I'll die, you know? And so, so that's what I'm doing right now. And that's basically where I am. Indefinitely, I mean, like, yes, I am indefinitely in this shit hole, but, but I think that sooner, I think I'm pretty close. I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm more than halfway I get now. With um, the fact that you are an outsider, you're a, a, a American, and you have this, this status of fame, um, do you run any risk of being targeted by people because you're because you're so you stand out i was they tried to kill me three times when i first got put in prison because everybody wanted to be the guy that killed wild bill you got kids running around here the maximum sentence in panel is 50 years you can't have any more than 50 years so if they kill somebody else it doesn't change their situation you understand what i'm saying doesn't change anything for them they still got 50 years so i had I, three times they they tried to kill me in prison not like it wasn't the it wasn't the car if the cartel wanted me dead, I would have been dead a long time ago. I didn't go down for the cartel because I didn't hit on anybody, and I took all the blame for myself. When I got put in prison, the first thing I did was tell my lawyer to send copies of my statements to all of the boys on the outside so they wouldn't send anybody to kill me because anybody can kill anybody in a Panamanian prison. You're not safe here. I mean, mm-hmm. like the smallest weak guy walk up and blow your brains out, you know I mean? So you're not, it's not – it's a different environment. I realized that immediately – and, and, and also I had some good help from a British gangster who was in prison here who helped me understand my situation better. And, and but anyway, so when I got sent to, to Chiriki, that stopped. I got sent from this capital city to this little podunk minimum security prison. I, I paid a bribe and got sent there in 2011. And when I got sent there, all the killing, in, the attempts to kill me stopped. And I put myself immediately in charge of that prison. I was there until 2000. 19 when i got sent here to this hell so and this hell now i'm they look at me like the godfather or something of that nature like like this kindly old <laughs> i don't know i don't know how to even explain it this kindly old killer who, who everybody wants to take a picture with you know yeah. and, and and that actually is really helpful for the church as well because i'm famous and so like everybody shuts up and if i speak everybody listens because they want to know what is the Godfather going to say, and so so that's been really helpful. I want to use that negative fame for something positive, and I really am. It's really we got here. We had twenty two, but four, but but six guys went free. So we've got sixteen guys in the church right now, and uh, and all six of guys, the other six guys that went free are doing great in the street. They're doing great outside. They're not, you know, in the gangs again. And, and we have we have a I've got a church group on the outside trying to help me with that. Keep them keep them straight. You know. And so, so, I mean, like, we really have a program that I designed here in hell 
it's working. I realize the only way I can get out of this is by doing the good, the right thing, man. I mean, I'm not like this selfless, wonderful guy, but I mean, the only way that I can ever have a life ever again is just busting my ass and doing the things that are right that I should have been doing since the day I was born. Being the quote unquote politician I should have been, not the fucking little hood that I was. And so, so that's basically, you know, where I am. Um, what, what transpired, um, that, because my understanding is that you originally, especially when you were, um, being a hitman, you weren't really a man of faith and now you definitely are a man of God and, and you're very active in the church. What, what is it that helped you find God? I, I, the story about how I became pastor is kind of funny. I, I grew up in the church. I, I was raised the Baptist. And when I got put in prison, I had this this Anglican, like Episcopal priest that used to come and see me. He was a Haitian guy. He he was a prison chaplain, and he was like the only one that would even was afraid of me at first because like they had made such a big monster out of me on television that everybody, even the prisoners, were afraid of me. So he used to, his name was Roberto Bouchel, and I called him Father Bob, kind of as a joke. Here comes Father Bob. But he spoke English, perfect English, and he was, he was black as a black man can be. I mean, like, I'm talking about the blackest black man I've ever seen, you know, and he had a shiny bald head. And he would sing these wonderful hymns and songs I remember when I was a little kid. He would sing them in English. And I, I had this emotional experience one day. I mean, like, literally, this was like only four or five months after I'd been arrested. And I, I was even considering killing myself, you know, mm-hmm. because I thought, well, my life's over. And he came, and I had this emotional experience. I can't even really put it into words, but I mean, like, God was there. Whatever you believe, you know, like, we all believe that God's a spirited, or like the Christians, at least. I am a Christian, but but different. Uh, Most Christians believe that God's like a bearded old man watching down from heaven. But I don't think God's a man at all, you know? I mean, I don't think he has man qualities. I don't think that he's like a human at all. Uh Um, The Bible's... Man was made in God's image, but I think that was mean, that means that God was the creator, and we're all creators as well. That's what I believe. I mean, I think that's what it, basically what it says, you know. But but we all like most Christians think about God as like this old man that you that's like waiting to punish you, you know, waiting on you to fuck up, so you so he punishes you. And I think that what God really is is like this super intelligence, this spirit, this intelligent spirit that knows everything about you and and. And I, I became aware of that spirit in that moment when he and he sang and, and, it, and it like I screwed me up. I was like really screwed up for days after. I mean, like not, I didn't know what to think about myself. So I began to read the Bible and all that stuff. And, and my mother, she came to visit me. My poor, poor mother came to visit me and she brought me a Bible. And so I I'd laid it in the corner. I never even thought about reading it until I started visiting my Bob. And so when I, got sent, when I arrived, I got sent to the, to the easy jail. Bob called me and he said, I want you to talk to my friend. He's a Catholic priest. So this guy named Rory, Rory Gutierrez, um, a pastor, or a, 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 a priest, a Catholic priest, came to talk to me. He said, I want you to come to our church services and stuff. And so I said, okay, cool, I will. So I went, I started going to Mass, going to Catholic Mass. And I'm not Catholic, not really, but but maybe I am. I don't know. I mean, anyway, so I started going to these Catholic Mass, and I, and I learned about it, and and I was good at helping with the church. And so they actually gave me a catechism and put me in charge of the Catholic church on the inside. And it came out that I had been made chaplain of the prison. That's a bunch of bullshit. I didn't, you, you can't be a chaplain of a Catholic. You can't be a cha- Catholic chaplain unless you're a priest. I'm certainly not a priest. 
freeway came out in the news and everything. It's kind of sad that they made a so light of it. Anyway, so I worked in the church there for a few years and and learned how to be a Catholic, and I really enjoyed the time I spent with the Catholics. And then and then I, I was like living two worlds at the same time. But you know, I was I was walking walking like had one leg on one side of the fence, one leg on the other side of the fence. You know, I I, I spent. Every Thursday, I organized all the church services, uh, and then and then the rest of the week, I spent organizing the mafias into a, into a into a piece. I mean, we on the inside they were killing each other, and so I created this thing called the Directiva, and it was like one the head of each gang. We all met in, with the with the with the with the, the the custodians with the with the guards. We met with the guards once a week. And talked about you know what's going on. How can we better work together? How can we not kill each other? And my motif was, I was like, hey guys, you guys sell drugs, right? And that's how you make money. You can't sell them drugs if you're shooting at each other. So stop fucking shooting at each other, and let's assign territories to each one on the inside of the prison. This part of the prison belongs to these. That part of the prison belongs to those. And let's try to work together so that you can all make more money and people will stop being murdered. And of course, drug use didn't get stemmed at all, but homicides did. And so, and and also, I made a lot of money in the process. I'm being honest. And and so, I like in a really hypocritical way became this figure of peace. But it was all kind of bullshit, you know. And uh, but it worked. It worked, but it was bullshit. And I got sent here to this hell where I am. And I know we're running long, and I got to go too. But I'll tell this story, and I'll go. I got sent here to this place, and there was this guy that preached named Jerry. And Jerry was like, one day he wanted to be the pastor of the church, and the next day he was drunk. And then one day he was the pastor of the church again, and the next day he was high on cocaine. So, I mean, he wasn't very effective, and people, it was kind of a joke. So, I got this kid here who calls himself my son, who, and we were talking three and three and a half years ago this happened. Well, it actually happened in February, February of 2020, just before COVID hit. So one, I told Jerry, I said, I'm going to help you, Jerry. I, I was praying to God, who I very much believe in, and asking God, why are these terrible things happening to me? Obviously, because you're an idiot, Bill. That's the response. And you should stop being an asshole, and bad things will stop fucking happening to you. That's the response that I got from God. And so God said, literally in prayer, God, and I'm not insane. God doesn't speak to me like with words, but in my heart, I was moved to try to help crazy Jerry with the church. So I went and talked to Jerry, the the, the, the preacher slash drunk, and said, "Hey man, let's 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 organize the church a little bit better so that it'd be more effective." So I began helping him, and it, you know, and and I don't know that people really were coming to hear Jerry, but they were coming because we had something organized. Then. One day, my son, which means cop killer, because that's what he's here for. He killed two police officers in the street. You can imagine he's a favorite of the police here. Um, anyway, he, he, for some reason, waited till after the service and walked up and kicked Jerry, preacher Jerry, in the ass. Like, kicked him in the ass hard enough to lift him up off the ground. I don't, I don't know why he did this. He's, he's very, he's a pain in the ass. Both of them are pain in the asses. And so... I was in my cell when this happened, didn't know it happened. So Pastor Jerry comes running in the cell, in my cell, and says, give me a knife. And I said, well, there's a knife right there on the shelf. And he's like, no, no, because it's this little thing I used to use to peel oranges with. He says, no, no, give me a shank, man, a fucking shank. I'm like, 
Jerry, you're the pastor of the church. I'm not going to give you a shank. Why do you need a shank? I don't even have one. What, what, what do you need a shank? And he said, I'm going to kill Manta I'm going to kill Copular. I'm going to kill Manta Policia. And I said, why are you going to kill somebody, Jerry? You're the pastor of the church. I'm like looking at him with disdain, you know. But he's like really pissed off. And he said, no, you kicked me in the ass. And he said, I'm sick of doing this. I'm sick of being the pastor. Fuck the church. I'm like, no, don't even say that, man. Don't even say that. That like hurts my ears. But to hear you say it. So he says it like four or five times and he leaves. So I thought, well, he'll get, he'll calm down because he is like that. And he'll calm down. And I went and talked to the cop. I'm like, what the fuck's wrong? Are you going to kick, kick the pastor in the church in the ass? What's wrong with you? Don't do that. And so I went and talked to Jerry and, and I had told you, I said, Hey, I want you to Monday. we got a church service to give. This is on Friday. And I said, Monday, we got a church service to give. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. So the next day I went and saw Jerry and he's drunk off his ass. And I, you know, and like, he's not going to do the church service. So on Monday, I asked God, I'm like, I don't know what to do because I don't have anybody to preach. And he's like, you preach. I'm like, you out of your mind. Are you out of your mind? This is a conversation I'm having with God in my heart, in my mind. Mm-hmm. Are you out of your mind? And, and God said, you're going to do what I tell you. I'm going to kill you. And he's he, and, and like, literally, I, I got that. If you don't straighten your ass up, you're almost ready to be killed now. If you don't straighten your ass up and do something different, you stupid imbecile. Like every way I'm trying to get your attention. You've lost everything you had. You're, you know, you're in the worst part of prison. You lost your wife. You lost your money. You lost everything. What do I need to do? Do I, must I take away your life so that you wake up? And I thought to myself, shit, I don't even, oh, I don't want to do this. And so I went and did it. And I wasn't very good at it. And I asked God, I said, I asked God to send me somebody, you know, I want somebody, send me somebody to do this because I'm not good at it. Look, I mean, I'm not even good at it. And he's like, just keep doing it until you're good at it. I'm like, bullshit, I don't want to do this. I don't want, this is not what I want to do, you know. And, um, and I mean, I know this sounds like insanity, but this is like me talking to God in my own mind, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I just kept doing it, kept doing it until I got really good at it. Like, really good at it. And I'm, I, there isn't anybody better at it than I am now. And, like, I had police come from outside to hear me and stuff, you know. And, and like, officials come to hear us here and just observe our church services. And so, so they're really effective. And it's not so much a church service, if you want the truth, as it is a motivational speech. And it is aimed at trying to help people, you know, get off crime, change their lives, and become something better. So that's what I'm doing. And I think that it's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Even if, if, if God sees fit to let me get out of jail, I'm still going to do it because I actually feel really good about myself for the first time, you know, ever. So, so that's it, brother. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, things have been turning around for you in that, in that sense. Um, I just have one last question, which is, do you have any idea? Um, I'm sure you and your wife got separated or your ex-wife, Laura, do you know uh, how things have turned out for her? What's going on with her? I don't. I speak to her occasionally, and then we're still friendly. And I hope that I really want the best for her. Obviously, I think that she's probably going to get out of jail this year or next year. I think. I think. I don't think she'll finish 2024 in prison. Yeah. What she's going to do, I don't want to. I don't want to speak for her. I don't know what she's going to do or what her plans are. But I know that she's healthy right now, and I think she's mentally stable. And and. Um, not that she wouldn't be mentally. She's never been mentally unstable. I'm not saying anything bad about her. But I think she's in a good place and, and uh, like emotionally and probably ready to start on and continue on with the rest of her life. You know. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. And um, before we come to a close, is there anything that you want to plug, announce, say anything to anybody before we before we go? Yeah. 
I do. Actually, I want to ask everybody in the audience, if you've listened to all of this shit that I'm saying and all this this crazy life of mine, then, and you find it interesting, or if you'd like to speak to me about anything, please come and visit me on Facebook at Friends of Brother Bill or on Instagram at Holiness Bill. Also, if you want to hear more stories about prison and crazy shit that I go through every day, which it is always something interesting, go on to YouTube and look up Life Inside Hell. It's a YouTube channel called Life Inside Hell, and, and you'll see the audio diary that I have there. I think there's like, I don't know, 14 of them already out, and, they're, and it's just a pretty new project. Honestly. I've only been doing it for about a month or maybe two months. Um, and then also, if you want to support me, to eat, there's, there's lots of ways you can support me, but the, way, the easiest way to support me is go buy my book, and also you'll be entertained. Long Live the King Wild Bill, that's available on Amazon, and it's got great reviews. I'll, I'll send all these links also to Jonathan Doe and ask him to, you know, to include them so that you'll have an easier time being able to get a reach out and get in touch with me. I love each and every one of you. I thank you for listening to everything, and I really thank John Doe for helping me, you know, tell my story. Yeah, man, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk and, and be so honest. It was it was really good to get to know you, and I'm sure we'll talk talk more in the future. So. All right, thanks so much. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Uneasy Train Explorers Club podcast. This podcast is the product of Putrid Productions, which also produces my YouTube channels, Cinema's Underbelly, where I analyze and review extreme underground cinema, as well as my channel, Murderbilia Show and Tell, where I share pieces of true crime relics from my personal collection and tell the stories behind them. Additionally, Putrid Productions also has its own distribution label, Vile Video Productions, where I release my films as well as the movies of other filmmakers within the extreme horror underground. So if you want to keep the putrefaction going, make sure to check out these other endeavors, as well as keeping a lookout for upcoming podcast episodes. Till next time, I'm Jonathan Doe, and this is the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club Podcast.